The Corinthian letters, um, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, have a really special relevance um, to the modern church. The believers in the first century that received this letter lived in a society that is very similar to our own, with a lot of sexual permissiveness and wealth and diverse religious beliefs, everything from divorce and remarriage to sexuality, from gossip and divisiveness to spiritual gifts, from the ordinances to conflict resolution, from Christian liberty to finances, and how the gospel informs and shapes all of that are addressed in the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. As one writer said, if you ever wanted to preach the most relevant topical series ever, preach expositionally through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so, Lord willing, that's exactly what we're going to do, at least the first letter during 2022. So over the next five months, we're going to take up six particular church challenges that Paul had to deal with in Corinth and what we can learn from this. Each of the six challenges will have about three sermons attached to them. So we're not going to necessarily take one challenge per sermon. That would be six sermons, but more like three, challenge, three sermons per challenge. And so as we walk through the first challenge this morning, which is the challenge of division, we're going to begin discussing at length verses 1 through 9. And as was just mentioned, the church in Corinth is a church that's filled with problems, problems that are caused by the remaining sin in the Corinthian Christians. However, it's interesting that in light of all the sinful struggles and church challenges that Paul has with Corinth, he doesn't address them in the opening verses of this letter. There is no mention of any challenge. Rather, he spends the first nine verses reminding the Corinthians of the extent of God's grace in their lives, an extent of grace that he does not want to neglect to mention. Paul usually tried to begin his letters with some kind of thanksgiving, but this was a church that was famous, maybe I'll say infamous, for its faults. We see no single church in the entire New Testament in which there were more problems or of such differing kinds than the church at Corinth. And yet, Paul begins by telling them of all the ways God has been at work in their lives and individually as a church. So why does he do this? Why does he begin this way? We aren't told directly, but we can infer that they needed this reminder. And maybe he needed to remind them of this for, his, for himself to set his own framework for how he would address them in the letter. Because so much of our sin springs from the forgetfulness of who we are and what God has done. It's good to be reminded of all the ways that God has worked in our lives before we move on to things that need to change. So in fact, it's especially important at the beginning of this new year to identify all the ways that God has worked in our lives in the past, and that gives us the perspective that we need and the hope that he will continue to work in our lives now and in the future because of all the grace he has already shown us in the past. So this is important to remember because if you can't tell, 2022 will have personal challenges for us, and it will have challenges as a church. We're called to be kingdom embassies as churches, but often we have to confess that we're kingdom embarrassments. We're full of people 
like me who are, can be grumpy, irritable, unfaithful, selfish. As Mark Dever says, we can become too possessive of small things and too casual about great ones. We become too defensive for ourselves and ignore God. We talk of love, but we often give ourselves over to hate, even in the church. Our news feeds can be filled with bad news about the true state of our church. I get emails daily, it seems, talking about the institutional pride, the financial corruption, the ungodly rot, the spiritual abuse, the apathy to sound doctrine, the twisting of scripture to exploit and manipulate people, the pimping out of the gospel for worldly ends, the eagerness of many to trade our prophetic power for proximity to politicians. Yet, in the midst of all that, we will not have the courage and patience to do the deep work of reform in the days ahead unless we're filled with love for the bride of Christ. One must love something deeply before seeking to renew it. You can't reform a church you hate. So look at the church with grief, yes. Mourn its flaws, lament the evils. But we also need to reestablish our commitment. Not only to rooting out the reasons for such shame, but also letting our lament for the church's present faults never let us lose the wonder of God's love for an imperfect, broken, sinful church. God had used Paul to establish the Corinthian church during his time of a second missionary journey. Paul then spent a year and a half in Corinth working as a tent maker and a leather worker and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians. It was probably a few years later during his time in Ephesus that he wrote 1 Corinthians, which is a letter in response to a letter the Corinthian church had sent him where he answers specific questions that were put to him by some of the believers there. The church Paul had established was very young and very spiritually immature, but yet it was full of life, and yet it was also full of problems. And Paul begins not by first addressing all the problems and the challenges, but by reminding those Corinthians of every good thing they have in Christ. And we need to do this as well. Before we speak critically of any church, let alone our own, or of any Christian, or among our own, we need to pause and first consider the evidences of God's grace at work in the God's church. So let's look at five of them this morning. First of all, God can change anyone. God can change anyone. Notice in verse 1, that Paul describes himself in this way, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Anytime we come across this, we should be shocked all over again. Paul was, according to his own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of God, of Christ, of the gospel before he was saved and transformed. He participated in the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. But Jesus was merciful and saved Paul to give testimony to the fact that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. 1 Timothy chapter 1 again, 
I thank him who gave me, given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul's testimony. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the love and faith that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Galatians 1, 23 and 24 records the word on the street about Paul from the early Christians and their response. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That was the word on the street about Paul. There's this guy who's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of him. God could change Paul. God could change these messy Corinthians too. Paul, and even reminding himself of his own testimony and how God had changed him, that gave him hope that he could in fact change these Corinthian Christians. But not only had God changed Paul, he had also changed a man by the name of Sosthenes, who we get introduced to in verse 1 as well. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Now Tom Schreiner, New Testament professor and commentator, said that we cannot be sure whether this was the same Sosthenes who was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth in Acts 18.17, but I think such a suggestion is likely, and I agree. Otherwise, why would Sosthenes be mentioned? Why would these Corinthian Christians know of another Sosthenes other than the one who was the leader of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth? If so, what would be the purpose of including him in the introduction of this letter? Well, in Acts 18, when a frustrated mob was unable to have Paul successfully convicted and dealt with by the Roman officials, we read in Acts 18, 17, that they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the court. At this stage, he was a Jewish leader who was opposing Paul, but it appears that by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, Sosthenes has been converted. Sosthenes is now our brother in Christ. So if God can change Paul, and God can change Sosthenes, two men who were di di opposed directly to the gospel message, then Paul has hope that the Corinthians can be changed. If Paul was changed, if Sosthenes was changed, the Corinthians can be changed, and you and I can change. If we don't believe we can be changed, we won't change. Paul believes that because God changed him, that because God changed Sosthenes, he can change the Corinthians. And that's good news, brothers and sisters. This means that no matter what mess you're dealing with in yourself, in your family, at work, or among your church, no matter what things you're dreading about 2022, God can change those things. The first evidence of God's work among the Corinthians is the fact that Paul himself is writing the Corinthians. And in recognizing God's grace in his own life, Paul is prepared to recognize God's grace in the Corinthians. Only those with a divine perspective of the church and a divine perspective on their own lives can recognize or are willing to give evidence of God's grace in a church. 
The Bible presents the church using beautiful and glorious word pictures. The church is the body of Christ. She's a building that's built on the firm foundation of Christ. She's called a radiant bride, loved and purchased by the Son of God. These images are not only beautiful, but reassuring. They, in a sense, present the church in an attractive and alluring manner. Even as one of your pastors sits at home this morning sick, Pastor Keith Withrow, he texted all of us this morning, said, I'm praying for all of you brothers that you would love those dear saints. Pastor Keith is a man who's modeling for us this divine perspective on you. He doesn't see you and the sins that remain in you, although he's, we see those things, but that's not the things we choose to focus on. We recognize, he recognized this morning, your dear saints. One does not have to stay very long in a church to notice that beauty and glory that's described in the New Testament is often a distant illusion by experience. But we can choose which image we will focus on. And it will make all the difference in your soul, and it will make all the difference in your ministry to others. Much of the time, that vision is shaped by how we view ourselves before God. Do you view yourself as a once spiritually dead, rebellious, hell-bound hater of God like Paul did? Are you amazed that you're converted? Are you shocked that you're in the kingdom? It's those people who minister grace to others. And if you're hard and exacting with others, it's because you're hard and exacting with yourself. And frankly, the gospel needs to get deeper in your marrow than it currently is. Do you basically consider yourself a good person to whom God lent a little hand in salvation? If you think that, then you'll expect more out of people and you'll make more demands of them. But if you view yourself as a formerly spiritually dead, rebellious, hell-bound hater of God, you will look down on no one. Since in your own estimation, you are the least of the apostles. You're the least of the saints. You're the chief of sinners. But if you view yourself in the latter as a somewhat kind of sinful person whom Jesus just cleaned up a little, then you'll have a tendency to look down on others. See, we do this by thinking more about Christ than thinking about Christians. And the more we think about Christ, the more it leads us to think about ourselves. And then we think about God's people. But that's the first encouragement that he gives them. Secondly, because God can change anyone, secondly, God has also set us apart for him. God has set us apart for him. Notice in verse 2 the way he addresses the Corinthians. He doesn't say to the Corinthians. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth. The church is God's church. Paul has hope for the church, not because the church is the Corinthian church first, but because the church is God's church. It belongs to God. It's owned by God. Whatever challenges we face as a church, we are owned as a church by God. You're not the elders' church. You're not the deacons' church. You're not the members' church. You're God's church. It wasn't Paul's church. It wasn't Sosthenes' church. God looked at these Corinthians and said, they belong to God. They don't belong to me. They're not mine. I do have a special concern for them. But he says they're God's church. And notice he also says that they're sanctified. Verse 2. 
those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So typically when we think about the word sanctification or sanctified, we're thinking about the present responsibility of Christians to grow in likeness to Jesus, in holiness. And that's certainly true, but the Bible speaks of sanctification in the past, present, and future tenses. It's both a present pursuit, which is what we typically focus on, but it's because of a past action that's rooted in a future hope. And what's being spoken of here is the past tense of sanctification. They have been sanctified. That is, they have been set apart. The focus is on God's work in setting apart the Christians for himself. We aren't choice, but we are chosen. We aren't privileged, but we are pitied. How great a blessing it is to be a part of the people of God with whom the Lord is especially concerned. The fundamental reality for us as believers is that even in our sin, we've been set apart for God in Christ. Having been set apart as holy and with the future guarantee that we will one day be holy and blameless, we're called to be holy in practice. That's the way the gospel thinks. You have been set apart to be holy. Be what you are. You have been made holy in Christ. Be holy in reality. Pursue what you are. Be who you are. But we need to remember that we do not make ourselves holy. We have been set apart. Instead, we live out of the holy identity that we already possess by virtue of being set apart and united to Jesus Christ by faith. By pursuing holiness, we act according to what we truly are in the Lord. We have been set apart for God, called to be saints with all of God's people. These Corinthians full of problems, full of mess, full of challenges, have nevertheless been sanctified and are called to be saints. They are called to be what they have been made. They are to be positionally, sorry, practically, they are to be practically what they have been made by God to be positionally. So, what should we think about that? Well, we should have a very gracious assessment of who is and who isn't a believer and what is and what isn't a biblical church, right? If Paul can look at these Corinthians with all their issues, with all their struggles, with all their challenges, some of which we thank God are not a challenge for us, (laughs) and look at them and say, when I think about the Corinthians, I think about sanctified people who are called to be saints then we need to be very generous in the way we assess the church. We need to be slow in our take on things. In this church, you had Christians dividing over church leaders, tolerating incest, bringing lawsuits against one another, excusing sexual immorality, entertaining wonky ideas about marriage and singleness, eating food offered to idols in a way that did not build up their neighbors. Affluent Christians were abusing the Lord's Supper by marginalizing poor Christians. They were prioritizing less valuable spiritual gifts and failing to use their gifts to edify the body of Christ in love, and they were denying that God will bodily resurrect believers. And Paul looks at them and says, saints. These are saints. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. He believed the gospel he preached, brothers and sisters. He knew that this same gospel that saved Christians could sanctify Christians. If Paul viewed them this way, should this not impact how we view one another in the body of Christ? While we don't excuse sin... 
should we not having an exceedingly gracious assessment of each other? What is God's assessment of you? What is God's assessment of David's life? The king. 1 Kings 15.5 gives us God's epitaph over David's life. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. If we took time to read the entirety of David's life, you see a whole lot more sin than that. But God's assessment is, he's a blameless man. He hardly did anything wrong, except that one time when he killed that guy and committed adultery. That was big. And if we take time to read through Hebrews 11 and the hall of faith, we'd be exceedingly critical of the lives of God's weak children. But that's not what God chooses to focus on. He chooses not to draw attention to the ways that they've failed, but instead the ways that they've lived by faith. And at the end of the day, according to Hebrews 11, God was not ashamed to be called their God. Thirdly, God treats us with grace and peace. God treats us with grace and peace. I love how Paul loved these struggling saints. At the very beginning, he thanks God for them. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, verse 4, give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. At the very beginning, he thanks God for them and the grace given to them from Jesus. God delights in very weak Christians, and so should we. For the, Christian, for the Corinthians and for us, the Christian life is marked by grace from God and peace with God. God has treated us with undeserved favor. Christ has died to save us. He bore the penalty for our sin, and as a result, God's wrath has been turned away from us, and his eternal affection has been poured out on us. Any among you this morning, any among us this morning for whom that's not yet true, you can get in on that this morning. You can come in as an object of wrath and leave as an object of grace simply by turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This treatment of Paul, of the Corinthians, was reflective of God's treatment of us. This treatment is all the more amazing when you see that this church was so sinful, as I've already mentioned, sinfully divisive over church teachers that we'll talk about next week, tolerating incest and sexual sin and excusing prostitution and claiming that they had some sort of special knowledge and clinging to that in a way that didn't build up other Christians but tore them down, made them feel inferior. Abused fellow believers while they were trying to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Listen, if you're not yet a Christian, what would life be like for you in the new year if you knew this? You don't have to clean up to be right with God. You don't have to set any New Year's resolutions to get right with God. You don't have to change any of your bad habits. You don't have to, okay, God, I promise I'm going to do better this year in this and this and this and this. That is not the gospel. That's good advice. That's not good news. The good news is you don't have to clean up anything. 
Jesus has cleaned it up for you. Go to Jesus. Call on Jesus. Fall on Jesus. And He will clean you up in time. We don't earn grace from God. We don't earn peace with God. We just receive it. It's a Christmas gift. A week late. Have you received this gift, kids? You don't have to try harder. You don't have to try to overcome all your bad habits that your parents keep talking to you about to become a Christian first. You need to come to Jesus Christ in all your sin, all your imperfection, all your weakness. Just call on Jesus. Say, Jesus, I've really tried. My parents keep talking to me over and over again about this same kind of stuff. I can't fix it. I can't fix it. I need you to fix it. And he will. He will. He'll take it all from you. So call on him. If so, if you've received that gift, brothers and sisters, you've been called into fellowship with God. That's your state. You're a person who is in fellowship with God. You've been brought out of a relationship of enmity and hatred and alienation into a place of favor and blessing and peace and grace. Brothers and sisters, the problems in the church require a reappropriation and recommitment to the gospel if they're going to get solved. That's what Paul's teaching us in these opening verses. No hope for any church challenge without the gospel. No hope. No hope for church challenges without the gospel. No hope unless we're sanctified by Christ Jesus. No hope unless we're changed by Christ Jesus. No hope unless we receive grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No hope. And in this letter, Paul astonishes us in the way he addresses challenges. When he was facing the most normal of problems, he reached for deeply gospel responses. Paul called the Corinthian congregation to not be divided, but to be united, not worldly, but holy, not selfish, but loving. But that's not the surprising part. The surprising part is how he did it. How he argued this with them. He called them to forsake divisions because God is one. He called them to forsake selfishness because God is loving. He called them to submit themselves to God because God is gracious. In all this, the governing presupposition is not that the church should operate by a rule book of spiritual manners and etiquette, but that the church should live out the living reflection of God that God has called her to be. There is one God. He is holy. He's given himself in love, and his church, therefore, should reflect his own character, and we should be united and holy and loving, or else we lie about him. That's the point of why Paul's arguing the way he's arguing. We are not a political action committee. We are not a fill-up station for people who want a vague spirituality. We're not a club designed for inspiration. We're not a class designed for instruction. We are a people who have the name of God tied to us. We are his family. We are the household of God. We are a holy nation. We're the commonwealth of heaven. We're exiles and sojourners. We're his little flock. We're the first fruits of a new creation. We're the fellowship of the justified. We're the people of the word. We're the followers of the way. We're united to Christ. We share in fellowship with him. And if we receive the blessings of grace and peace, 
Though we were once defiled by sin, we are now cleansed and God has made us to be His holy people. And confidence to grow rests in all of this reality. We don't rest on ourselves. The logic of this letter is clear. The kind of repentance, the kind of holy living, and the kind of sacrificial love that will characterize and that should characterize believers in Christ can only be realized by the supply of and dependence upon gospel provisions. That's it. We can't do it by working harder, trying harder, doing more. It's only going to come through recognition and reappropriation of gospel realities and gospel provisions. Fourthly, God has been lavishly generous to us. God has been lavishly generous to us. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. That in every way, every way, you were enriched in Him. In all speech, in all knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he's just describing everything God's provided. You've been lavished. You've been blessed beyond measure. You have no idea how good you've got it. The Corinthians have been enriched in every way by God. They've been given every spiritual gift. As one writer said, they're not spiritually impoverished, but have been made better and given wonderful treasures. Paul states that the Corinthians have received gifts of speech and knowledge, What is amazing is that Paul is thanking God for the very gifts that the Corinthians are abusing. In verses 12, or chapters 12 through 14, which we'll get through, Lord willing, in some months ahead. That's because the gifts aren't the problem. They're from God. Despite the abuse of the spiritual gifts by the congregation, Paul sees their presence as a reason to praise God and an evidence of lavish divine grace in the lives of the congregation. They are overflowing with supernatural blessing. They are up to their eyeballs in the Spirit's work. (laughs) I have to have my pastoral lenses changed by Paul. How can you look at a church like that and say, those people are deeply spiritual? But that's what he says about the Corinthian church. Paul sees all this as evidence of spiritual life in them. The gospel was validated. That is, when he preached it, they received it. It was confirmed and received by them. He sees that as a marvelous work of lavish grace, that they believed and received the gospel, and that there were lavish spiritual gifts given to this congregation that were present among them. Therefore, according to verse 7, they don't lack anything. In Paul's mind, at least concerning spiritual gifts, they lack in holiness, they lack in living out the life that they've been given, but they don't lack in anything God has provided. God's grace to them has been lavishly dispensed to them. There is nothing that God should have given them that he has not given them. And brothers and sisters, that's true of us too. We don't lack anything anything for everything that God has called us to be and do. We don't lack any, anything. Everything that God has given, he, everything that we need has been given by God. Isn't that encouragement for you as you face a new year? As you look down the year knowing no idea what it's going to bring, everything will be supplied. That's good news. You don't have to know. If you'd have to know, if we knew, we'd probably hide out in our rooms all year. But the fact that we don't know, with all the blessings and challenges, we'll have both. 
All the days of joy, all the days of sorrow, we'll have both. Nevertheless, we can rest in this reality. God has lavishly enriched us in every way, and we'll have grace for the day. More than enough every day. When we go out and pick up the manna that God has supplied for that day, there'll still be enough left over. He won't just provide just enough. No, we'll have basketfuls and basketfuls and basketfuls left over because that's what God does. God is a generous God. When Jesus fed the thousands upon thousands on the hillside, what do we, what do we learn at the end? We learn every person was, they just had enough, right? And, and, and God cut it off. He said, you can't come back for seconds. No, out of a little boy's lunch, God fed thousands upon thousands of people till they were stuffed to the gills and had a to-go sack. That's God's generosity for us, brothers and sisters. Your sin is many. His mercy is more. Your trials, they are many. His strength is more. Your sorrows, they are many. His joy is more. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Your life is temporary. Your eternal life is forever. God is lavishly generous to us. So, brothers and sisters, let's speak with kindness to each other and exercise patience with each other the way Paul does with the Corinthian Christians here. Mark Dever, commenting on this, says, It's always wise to begin by noticing evidences of God's work in someone you must correct, even if there are other issues looming larger in your mind. Think about this, parents. I need to. You got things you need to correct in your children this year? Would they only know you by your correction of them? Or do you have any encouraging words to share with them this year? It must all, it's always wise, Deborah says, to begin by noticing evidences of God's work. Pause to remind yourself and one another of God's grace will make it easier for the erring one to hear the corrective words that you want to say, and it will also help you to have a more accurate perspective as you begin to discuss the need for correction. If you cannot see the evidence of God's grace in the one who needs correction, you may have a log in your own eye, in which case maybe you should wait to speak about the other speck until you see the evidences of God's work in your brother and sister. See, if you see they got the log, I got the speck, don't talk until you've got the speck, they got the log, or you've got the log, they got the speck, right? And if I said that all wrong, y'all know what I mean. Dever continues, my friends, if the one in error is a believer, God has purchased him or her, and his spirit is at work there. If you cannot see that, you're failing to see the most important thing about that person. Speaking of an encouraging thing that Pastor Ted has continued to leave in my heart and legacy, I hope in my heart, is how often over a beginning of an elders meeting or a meeting we were having, he would begin in prayer by thanking God for saving you. By, for, for all the grace that he sees at work. And that has shaped my life as well because those things are the most important things about any believer. Fifthly and finally, God will complete the work he began in us. What a good reminder on the beginning of a new year. God will begin the work he began in us. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a wonderful promise given here. You will be kept strong, believer, to the end by Jesus Christ himself, to the end of this year and to the end of your life. God is going to keep his people until the battle is won, the race is over, 
The job is done, and we've made it all the way home. He will complete the good work he began. We will persevere. He will make us, on the day of Jesus Christ, holy and blameless. At the day of Christ, when you stand before Christ, if you are in him, there will be nothing to lay against you as a Christian. There will be no guilt that you will be given. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he'll surely do it. He said it to the Thessalonians. He says it to the Corinthians here. He said it to the, at the end of his letter to the Thessalonians. He says it in the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Ephesians 5:27, so that he might present to himself in splendor the church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blameless, without blemish. He tells the Corinthians that Jesus will sustain them until the very end as guiltless. Guiltless? Really? Yes. The middle of the letter is full of their many sins. The end of their life won't be. They were snobbish and divisive. They won't be. They took each other to court. They won't. They couldn't give up their addiction to prostitutes. They won't. They were loose on doctrine and loose on moral behavior. One day they won't be. They focused on minor points of theology while missing love. One day they won't. They happily accepted divorce and they got drunk during the Lord's Supper. One day they won't. They were shot through with cliques and infighting. One day they won't be. They even rejected Paul himself in 2 Corinthians. One day they won't. They're not now. Given all that and much more at the end of this book, in the very last sentence, you'd expect Paul to say, now I'm going to dust off my feet after all I've said. May the wrath of God be upon you. But does he say that? No. Here's how he ends 1 Corinthians. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Paul loved this church. He loved these struggling saints with a gospel love. The local church in Corinth was a real church with real problems, just like our church. So what could be more important for our church to hear in these months together? In the lives of fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, we need to be more aware of evidence of grace than areas of deficiency. What first grabbed Paul's attention when he thought about the rowdy, discriminatory congregation in Corinth was God's grace. What about you? When you think about our local church, what comes to mind? Are you like Lucy from Peanuts? It's very strange, Lucy tells him. It happens just by looking at you. What happens, Linus says. Lucy tells him, I can feel a criticism coming on. (laughs) Is that you? When you look at your brothers and sisters in this church, do you just feel a criticism coming on? If so, you need Christ. And I need Christ. Because Christ will change that. Grace will change that. Which is your default? Signs of God's grace or ways the church needs to grow? You get to pick. You get to pick your lenses. 
and it will affect your life and your soul. Of course, our church needs to grow. Our church is not as holy and healthy as it needs to be. Paul knows this. He knew this about the Corinthians. Repentance mattered to him. It's not like he's excusing everything he's getting ready to talk to them about. But what was the hair trigger of Paul? Now, this doesn't mean it was natural. It's supernatural. You get this way supernaturally. The same Holy Spirit that lavished the Corinthians with their gifts lavished Paul in the writing of this. He inspired him. He was under the control and operation of the Holy Spirit as he wrote these words to the Corinthians. It was the Spirit who enabled him to do this. But it required intentionality and focus and deliberate effort to communicate them. And that reality was God's grace all over the place in Corinth. Have you ever had the thought, we could have a great church if only we could get rid of those people? Paul didn't think that way. 1 Corinthians is about seeing people the way God sees them. It's about seeing the world through biblical lenses and seeing the potential for the church, despite how messed up we are. Paul took a long-term vision for the church. Paul understood the church is Christ's chosen instrument for kingdom advancement. And this takes patience and kindness and grace and forbearance. So he stuck with them. He knew that God would work in their lives to bring the saints in Corinth to complete holiness. He trusted God's work in their lives as they built the church. So let me offer one creative outlet for this in the new year. Our new church directory is a little bit delayed because of printing. Everything's delayed, so hopefully we'll get it in the next couple of weeks. But when you pick up that new 2022 church directory, as you look at it and as you pray through it this year, in addition to asking God for the needs that you know about in the lives of the believers in our congregation, be sure to also thank God for the graces that you observe in those people. As pastors, as we make it our regular habit to pray through the directory on the front end of each of our meetings, I'm also struck by how much of our time praying together should be marked by these sorts of things and expressing gratitude to God for the ways we see God at work in your lives. This is how it should be. Now, for sure, our church membership directory isn't the Lamb's Book of Life. But since we're practicing regenerate church membership, it's a pretty good rough draft. I love it in our prayer meetings when we pray for each other and no matter what the issue is, someone invariably begins their prayer or concludes their prayer with something like this. Father, thank you for saving them. Thank you for calling them. Thank you for transforming that person, that family, those children. It doesn't matter what the prayer request was. Someone might have asked the church to pray that God would heal a sore throat, but inevitably the person's salvation is what headlines the prayer. When you flip through the church directory, you're looking at the faces of people who used to be dead. Now they're alive in Christ Jesus. You're not looking at mere mortals. You're looking at future princes and princesses of the new heavens and the new earth. Future kings and queens of the universe. The excellent ones of the earth in whom is all my delight, as the psalmist says. As C.S. Lewis reminds us, Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to or pray for this year, you may one day day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Brothers and sisters, we're going to conclude our service in a few minutes, and you're going to stand up, and you're going to hopefully linger a little while, as long as you can, and greet one another and talk. 
want you to think about that you're communing and talking with vice regents of the coming kingdom who will reign with you with Christ forever. Hug them that way. Appreciate them that way. I'm praying that the themes of 1 Corinthians will shape our church into the church we all want. We all want to be more gospel-centered and cross-focused and Bible-trenched, marked by loving, covenanted, holy living and care for one another and gospel love, joyfully submitting to the elders and caring for one another and giving witness before a watching world of the resurrection of Jesus, all to the glory of God. We all want that. Isn't that what we all want? And if so... As I preach through 1 Corinthians, it'll happen, right, by magic? No. But this book does lay the fertile soil and the groundwork for the Holy Spirit to begin and continue that good work in us. So may God use it and our time in this together to help us grow more as a church in living together in the way we all want and in the way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, when we reflect on your goodness to us, we are amazed and we marvel at how kind you have been to such undeserving and ill-deserving sinners as ourselves. Lord, we have literally drank in a cascading flood of your grace this morning. In the songs we've sung, in the prayers we've prayed, in the readings we've enjoyed, in the sermon we've heard, in the text we have read, and the truths we have meditated on, Lord, it has been a cascade of grace. And we pray that you would so impact us that we would be transformed from the inside out by the beholding of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.